0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: Hello, my name is Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes Revisited. This week, we are revisiting Billy Piper and Bexie Cameron, who was born into a cult called the Children of God. More on that later, but let's kick off with Billy. Famous since she was 14 years old, a pop star turned award-winning actress, and last year she released her first directorial debut with the film Rare Beasts, which was absolutely amazing. Now, Billy often plays complicated female characters, which we discuss in this conversation. You may know her from Doctor Who, Secret Diary of a Call cool Girl, Collateral which earned her a BAFTA nomination her most recent TV appearance which is I Hate Susie which has done really well or her stage acting She's won six Best Actress Awards, including an Olivier Award for her performance in the play, Yerma. In this conversation, which we had in March 2021, Billie opened up about her life and relationships and early fame and the impact of that fame on her. And we jump in here at that point, how she was treated in the early days and how that's impacted what she does now. Mentioning your eating disorder, Mm. I watched an interview that you did on Parkinson when you were super young. I don't know, I think it was 2005 or Mm. something like that. I think you've done two and it was maybe your first one, but you had to really explain to him about anorexia and the motivations behind it. And he was asking these questions that made me want to shout at the television and be like, A, why are you expected at that age to sit on national television and have to break down your eating disorder to anyone? Mm. And and you know, times have changed since then. I don't think you would be oh asked my to god, do that. Yeah. God. But and also now, your divorce just... and like oh, everything. It was so you had to you, you it was just expected of you. And then another thing he said, which did my head in, was he talked about marriage. He's like, So will you get married again? You're you're divorced already and you're only twenty five or something. And I was like, Oh my god, who cares if she gets <laughs> married again or not? Oh like and you're so Giving and patient and nice about the whole thing. I
2: know, I- but that's the issue, and that it's that giving and the niceness that has made me really angry. Mm. That unboundaried line of questioning. I mean, that's not just in an interview. That that's sort of an expectation of maybe of women, certainly of famous women, but I think also of just women who don't have a profile in that in that way. But I look back on that now as well. I look, I I sometimes watch old Jonathan Ross interviews as well and it's, it's not that long ago but you just, I don't know that you could ask those questions anymore. I just, no. it would feel so tone deaf now. Mm. The mm. questions that women have had to answer, some of it's unforgivable. Mm. And I think it's fed very much into, for me, it's fed a, a, into my work a lot, that sort of unbelievable um frustration and acts to grind about how available we have to be all the fucking time.
1: A lot of your roles that you play, the ones that you've written and the ones that you've chosen involve women who are just going through a lot. Like fucking <laughs> yeah. so intense, be it like, you know, mental health problems or just you know, just going through trauma of various kinds or, or just kind of an unraveling of sorts. Why are you drawn to those roles, do you think? And why do you feel like the need to create those roles?
2: Because I think people need to see it authentically. I lot with sort of female characters in, in drama or historically or whatever, it's like, oh, she's... Anyone who's had a sort of willful moment in their life is chalked up to being mad or a slut or uh, unwell or whatever, and I think it's really important that, like, moving forwards, we talk about why those things happen and how it ends there. And also that it's okay. Like, mm. it's totally fine. Of course, these experiences in your life are absolutely maddening. It feels like a responsibility of mine. But also I'm more interested in it. I've, yeah. I've only ever seen that stuff in my life. I haven't yeah. seen, in my childhood, I haven't seen a woman really... Nailing it. I haven't. I've Mm. I've seen them doing their best given their circumstances and it's cost them more than it's cost any other fucker. And they're funnier because of it, they're more interesting because of it, but it's also it's it's cost them years of their life just living. And Mm. I wanna talk about that creatively and give it a bit more context, you know, it's more satisfying for me, I think.
1: I after Watching Rare Beasts, that's when I, I watched some of the Parkinson interviews and it, it struck me, one of the things that you say to Michael Parkinson is that you're a hopeless romantic. And, yeah. and this this came just at the end of, of the film, of my favorite line in the film. You were such a ray of light when I met you and I just stole from you every day. Well, that's marriage. <laughs> and then a little bit further, every day I spent with you, a little piece of me died. It's called a relationship. <laughs> <I know. laughs> like. So, so, so the opposite of being a hopeless romantic. Like, there is romance, I thought, in Rare Beast. Like, yeah. the mum and dad characters, like, this kind of brutal honesty at the end and this kind of need to be near this husband in her deathbed. I
3: know.
2: It's
1: fucking heart wrenching and, and so utterly romantic, I thought.
2: Yeah. I'm so drawn to romance, but I think I'm drawn to it. And then I enjoy the sort of chaos of it and the inevitable sadness that comes with a lot of it. Um, not all mm. of it, but the fact that you that can sort of completely pull each other apart. You're left like a husk of um, your <laughs> former self and, and what, that, what that means and what that takes just to get to the end of it. Yeah, I mean I've seen I've seen people behave so appallingly in relationships and in the face of rejection which is something that the film talks a lot about is how mm. certainly how men behave in re, in the face of a, uh, rejection. And yet sometimes if you've shared a great deal of your life with someone, you you want them there with you at the end. Not always, but sometimes and it's just one of those sort of hopeless sad dark truths. Mm.
1: Are you still a hopeless romantic?
2: <laughs> I can't watch that Parkinson interview. I just look at that thing. Actually, I found my... Because I used to keep journals all the time and I found my journal diary the other day and I was reading back at it at that, a similar time in my life and I just just found it so hard to read. Mm. I find it like... I don't know who I... I don't know which version of me is more true. I, I Like, I look back and I think, God, I, I'm just don't even recognize that person it feels Mm. so far away from what's happened since and where I'm at personally it just feels like oh god I just I you I just look oh you're so shiny and and like you like everything (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think
1: it's a very like instinctive thing. It's so cringy the idea of reading your diary when you're a teenager. Like I've done the same, and you can't not cringe. Oh
2: good, but I, so good.
1: But, oh no, that's very normal. But it it does make sense why you would create the art that you do now, which is just so full of flawed people and yeah, kind of pushing the boundaries of society's norms and what people are supposed to think and feel and, and behave like you know
2: yeah and I would say like I've said this before I would I mean some people watch this film and they're like oh my god they're so awful to each other like do it feels just unnecessarily coarse but I don't know like for me I've grown up in a family where people can be fucking ruthless with each
3: other <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. and
2: especially if they're if they're told no or rejected, I know mm. that world a bit. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, well, it's is. I think the film will be come cu- cu- maybe a bit divisive on some level, or, and I'm not sure how men will receive it. Quite a lot of guys that I've shown it to don't like it. Surprisingly, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely got a lot to say in these years of my life, and not all of it is palatable and it's certainly not shiny how do you want it to make women to feel I just hope that if you have experienced those feelings or thoughts then I just hope it's a relief on some level I think that's always what Mm. I I want with the with anything I do is that some someone can relate to it and that they get a sense of relief from that and that they enjoy seeing parts of their life reflected back at them Mm. And that they don't have to feel guilty and shameful about having a wild streak and being a mother at the school gates. You know what I mean? Those two different worlds that people don't like to imagine coexisting because you're a, you know, a mother, (laughs) you know, which is a professional woman who also wants to bake bread for her husband. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, you can also be, you can be all of those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the end as well, you know, when when there's a kind of reckoning of sorts and you say, you know, you have this confession of wanting a man, you know, and like, at the end of the day, the message is in there in the film that it's not totally anti-men, the film at all, you know, essentially, you do want a man.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that comes a lot from conversations I was having with my friends at the time, one of my mates couldn't confess to having no ambition (laughs) and just wanting to be at home taking care of her kids. And then one of my sort of, the feminist friend, although we're all sort of feminist, but you know what I mean? The one that was slightly more loud about it, saying... You know, I'm doing all these things that I want to do and doing them really well and going to well and being professional and, and that's going great. But I'm also going home and I have no time for any relationship and I'm really fucking lonely and I would love to f- have a big hug with a man in my bed and feel safe. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just another thing that we all fear. Saying. Yeah,
1: to say it out loud. Isn't that mad? Isn't it oh mad? No. Like It's just the role and the perception of women is changing so quickly well it could be quicker but it's changing quickly and it's kind of like it's all in flux isn't it you know in terms of what women can be
2: yeah absolutely
1: She's doing great things. Go and watch Billy's directorial debut, Rare Beasts, if you haven't yet. We also got into her marriage with the DJ Chris Evans and how that changed her life, as well as being a mother and her experience with therapy. If you want to hear the full episode, go back. That's Changes with Billy. Piper. Now our second revisited guest this week is Bexy Cameron, a woman who was born into a cult called the Children of God where children were abused, forced to live in horrendous conditions and to do horrific things. This episode struck a chord with so many people. Bexie's story is quite remarkable. One of those episodes where you're literally on the edge of your seat, you, you know, you have to pull over the car kind of episode. So Bexie Cameron and Her brothers and sisters in the cult were raised to believe that sex was love and there was no boundaries with it. Bexie came on changes in November last year after she released a book about her experiences called Cult Following where she tells her full story up to the point of escaping and being who she is today. She's now leading a happy life and able to speak about what happened to her from a new place where she has kind of processed and come to terms with a lot of the things that she went through. So we're going to go and revisit the start of her story when she first realised that her life as she knew it wasn't normal.
0: I can remember times when I thought that I was normal which is like probably my earliest memories, um, normal, such a weird word, isn't it? But like my earliest memories of feeling like I was in a, in a family where I didn't understand that I was in a cult. Um, I remember being in India and being on the back of my sister's bicycle and just driving through fields and having like the sunlight shining down on us and just remembering being as a person. And that was before all of the the understanding of me being in an Armageddonist cult came in. That's before I knew that I was being raised as a martyr. That was before I knew that I was supposed to die as a teenager. All of that stuff came afterwards. So it was probably the other way around of feeling normal and then feeling that actually I was being told I was a chosen one, which is such a loaded thing to say to a child in so many ways. We could unpick that. But yeah, so it's probably that way around. And then there was trickles of things that would come in. We would be in normal society and we'd see things like my parents would go up what you might call Bible bashing or evangelizing is what they would call it. And you'd see things that were normal shopping centres, children in school school uniforms, things that were another world to me. And that's, you know, another part of realising that I wasn't, I knew that I wasn't part of that world. But it's, it's a little bit blurred, I would say.
1: Can you give us the broad strokes of the children of God? Like, what do they believe and what was the kind of rule parameters that you grew up in?
0: So the things that they're famous for, they're famous for being a really damaging, exploitative group david berg was the leader and he was just wild when it came to what he believed he believed that the women should be prostitutes for jesus he called them hookers for jesus exploited them to bring in money and new members, which is probably one of the things that makes them stand out as a cult. It's quite unusual to have stuff like that kind of sewn into the beliefs. They believed that the end of the world was coming. They believed that the rapture was gonna happen. And when they started, it was in 1968, and it was around a time when, you know, I, I can imagine the world was ready for that kind of change, Vietnam, what was happening on the political landscape all of the riots and stuff you can almost imagine that there were that cults were almost needed in some ways so i can see why people like my parents joined at that point it didn't start out as a group that was all about exploiting women and children it started out as a revolution for jesus and that wasn't unique how they morphed into a group that became so damaging was unique in some ways but essentially, how I experienced it rather than how my parents experienced it, which was, was this kind of hippie revolution and, you know, revolution for Jesus and let's all shout woe in the streets, was just as a child that was raised in something really separate. That meant no television, no music, no education. We were allowed to read because we had to read David Berg's words, which he wrote a lot of the he mo letters. The, three, the mo letters. Oh my god, don't eat. I mean, we could do a whole yeah. hour conversation just about the mad ramblings of that man. Um, but yeah, so my experience of it was entirely different from my parents. I think they had this like moments of enlightenment and purpose, but I just grew up in something that was separate and contained and very controlled, and no freedom of speech, no freedom to be what I see children being now, that playfulness that um, we had our imaginations, which was their escape. But other than that, it was an extremely controlled environment. So yeah, I think there's a real kind of contrast in what adults can experience in joining a cult and what children can experience in just being born into one. And then coupled with that was this idea of the Armageddon coming. And for my parents, again, that was something that meant that they were gonna have this moment of glory, rising up to Jesus and you know, ultimate, like ultimateness. And for us, we were raised thinking we were going to die in this war. And there was a specific time when you would die? Was it 14? Yeah, years? so obviously with David Berg being a bit of a madman, I say a bit, a lot of a madman, it changed every time, every seven years. So when I was seven, I was going to die as a 14-year-old and that was kind of the the time when they they thought that we were all going to die. It was kind of like the, the, the mid-90s was when it was all going to happen and kick off. So I had this date looming over me um, and, you know, they added this exciting, almost childlike comic book side to it, which was you're going to have superpowers and you're going to breathe fire and you have lasers coming out of your eyes. And growing up as a, you know, I think most children have these visions of, you know, perhaps one day we'll have superpowers. And, you know, again, it's gutting when you hit 14 and all you get is a period instead of lasers. It's, you know, it's devastating, but it's the language that I think can be quite, insidious and damaging to, and and also just just to think that you're you're going to be special you're unique but also you're completely controlled i suppose you could draw parallels to being in a toxic relationship where the person tells you that you're amazing but they're the only person that would ever love you you know that kind of du- duality of like toxic love it's kind of like that in some ways if i was going to put it into something that maybe a lot of people have experienced but yeah it was um it was this two sides of the coin of being really special but also knowing that you're going to, you're going to die and not being allowed to speak as far as like not being able to have freedom of speech, but also being kind of almost put on a pedestal.
1: What about the the more kind of practical sides of living? Like the geography of your childhood is interested in these quick, sudden moves. Like it's, it's, it's all kind of leads to feeling unsafe, like having the rug pulled from under you a lot.
0: Do you know what's really weird? And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about when we would flee in the middle of the right. night because
1: yeah. the, going from so basically, to yeah.
0: yeah so we the, the children of God was outlawed in loads of different countries to give context yeah so when the journalists or when the police would knock on our door that would be it the house would be considered burned almost like we were KGB spies in some ways but way less cool but we'd have something called a flea bag that was always packed and it had essentials in it and we would just get in the van and we would run and we would go underground for however long it would take before they would find and start a new commune or cell, and that's because we were are not really legal in a lot of places we lived. So we grew up in India, Mauritius, loads of parts of Africa, um, and then the UK. And yeah, so we had this kind of fleeing in the middle of the night mentality. It happened like two or three times in a row, maybe more actually. But the weird thing about when you're in a, for me anyway, being in an environment that was that controlled, any type of change was exciting because any type of change meant something could get better. It wasn't like we were in a nice environment and then change equals fit. Because I think change equals fear to a lot of people, doesn't it? It's like any, even, you know, if we don't know what it is, it's like terrifying. But for me and for us kids, we were like, oh, anything could happen, anything could happen. And it was almost like this optimism that came with these with these big changes with these kind of knocks on the door and every time we'd be in the back of the van I'd be like oh something exciting is gonna happen with you know which which is probably just childlike optimism which I think kids are just fantastic for that regardless of where they're raised but yes it was almost like the opposite of that so I feel quite malleable to changes now maybe maybe less so than I was when I was a kid but um but yeah it was exciting even though inevitably and you'll know this because you've read the book the majority of the times that we had these big changes it wasn't because there was something better at the end of it unfortunately
1: yeah now where were your mum and dad in all of this and what was your relationship with them like as a young child
0: my relationship with my parents really changed growing up when we were in certain parts of the world we were in much smaller communes that had less constrictions places like India and Africa, we'd be in a house with like three families, for example, and everything Almost, you know, we had all the really toxic, damaging literature that was being flown around, all the stuff that you will have known about because you've seen it now, but all the things like the the Mo letters that were all about, you know, flirty fishing, what the, you know, the pornographic images that we were shown as children, there was a lot of kind of even child pornography that we had just readily available. That was just part of our daily life as kids, um, which in itself, is just a whole thing that it has its you know so many damaging endpoints to it, as you can imagine. But um, during those times, even though we were in these capsules of weirdness, if you like, it felt kind of normal because we did our parents were still semi-responsible for us. When I reached about eight years old and we moved to the UK, is when we were moved into big communes with really strict rules. That's when things went really dark, when my parents stopped being responsible for us as their children. And they basically handed over us children to the group. And that's when my relationship with my parents dramatically changed to the point that it never went back to how it was when I was a, a young child. But it also could have been because of the level of consciousness that you get when you start to get to that age. I think nine, 10-year-olds are so much smarter than a lot of times we give them credit for. I think about myself at that age and Almost that fly on the wall feeling of being like, they don't know that I know. They still see me as this teeny tiny child that's not taking things in. But um, the level of consciousness I think I had at that age was to really start to understand where my parents were in the hierarchy, how they, how they were behaving. And the fact that the group that I was in was extremely damaging. That all started to kind of really flood in.
1: So if we go now to your biggest childhood change, it feels like this is the point where you can tell us about that period in your life.
0: Yeah. I suppose I'll tell you about the dark side of the change before the lightness comes in. Yeah. The dark side of the change was um, the children of God started to realise there was a rebellion amongst the children and the teenagers mainly. Kids amazingly knew that what was happening wasn't right, even though we were separate. So this rebelliousness started to flow through a group. This group was massive, remember? We were in over a hundred countries. We had over 10,000 members, it was huge. And this swell of rebellion started to happen. And so their reaction to that, instead of like asking the kids, "Oh, you know, how do you feel? What do you want? Do we need to make changes ourselves? Was to clamp down. And they did this by creating these things called teen camps that they put kids who were wayward or rebellious into. and they wanted to make us better versions of end-time soldiers, martyrs, whatever you want to call us, by any and all means possible. And those were the words they used, any and all means possible. And that included things like isolating children, sometimes up to months at a time, included, you know, basic stuff like manual labour, but also things that were much more violent, like public beatings. Some of the adults that were drawn to the group, because of what the group preached by its very nature, it would attract predators. We were in these camps with adults that by the nature of what they wanted to do, they were cruel because they wanted to be. It was almost like they were excited by doing it. And I was put into one of these camps and I was 10 years old. My parents completely handed us over to this camp and I was put on something that they called silence restriction. That was on top of all the other things, like the violence, the beatings, everything else.
1: And Bexy, sorry, can you just contextualise the house you were in, the amount of people that were there? Just give us a picture of what it was like to live in that
0: commune. So this camp this commune, this compound, whatever you want to call it, that I was in, yeah. very strangely was actually on the countryside of the UK. It was, I believe, just outside of rugby, although I'll never know the address because we were always told different names for the compounds we were in, the Birmingham home, etc. Everything was codified so that we never knew where we were and so that if anyone ever ran away, we couldn't blow the house or tell them the address. So there was that air of secrecy that was around it the commune that I was in was an old set of like a farmhouse and barns that we'd done up ourselves when we moved in. There was no roof on one part of it. There was no electricity. We had to build this from the ground up. And there would have been about 100 people in it. We had dormitories with bunk beds, with basically kids stacked on top of each other, which I don't think is unusual. But the way, when I think about the square footage of the rooms that we had and how many children were piled in, it probably looked something similar to a refugee camp rather than what we would imagine as a boarding school. These things called trundle beds, which would slide out with like almost a concertina envelope with a child on each one, just kids stacked up. So very packed full and mainly full of teenagers. And then these adults who that with a hierarchy at the top, these leaders, that everything they said was the word of God. And so within this, you can imagine being a child that's then put onto sinus restriction, which was no speaking, no eye contact, which I think was one of the most difficult things for me to understand. I couldn't look anyone in the eye. I couldn't do hand motions. If you dropped a plate, for example, I couldn't pick it up and give it to you. That's considered communication. It basically meant do not exist within any room that you're in. And so to go through a commune where there's that many people and that many young people around you as well, and to become invisible for me, I think that's probably the closest I've ever come to, to losing my mind. I really did start to unravel and, and and have like a crisis of identity, which sounds bizarre to say that about a 10 year old, but it really was, it really was happening to me. And then that, went on the sign restriction itself went on for 11 months so just shy of a year so nearly a year of being invisible not talking not
1: communicating no eye contact
0: Mm -hmm. yep um and and that had all happened because of me being found out I was lying which is when I had my like I had my my exorcism as a nine-year-old and you know had my demons that they thought they that I had in me cast out and then went on to this further form of punishment. So they packed quite a lot into this year. And it really was up until this day, the hardest year that I've ever, I've ever been through. And that was the dark side of the biggest change of my life coming up to being 11 years old. And then age 11 is when the, the big, big thing happened, which was the children of God went into a massive court case And we had to kind of come out of the woodwork. There's a really long story that goes along with it, but essentially they couldn't hide anymore. And my parents became the public face of the group. And with that, they decided to let the first journalist ever into the walls or into the gates of the children of God. And this is where my kind of big moment of grace, if you like, or moment of change takes place. This... Man comes to stay with us, and um, he's very gentle. He's tall. He's from the Guardian, and we had days and days of being like, "The Guardian journalist is coming." I didn't, I can't, I couldn't remember his name for years after that. But I was like, "The Guardian journalist is coming," and we all got excited because an outsider was going to be in our house. And it was just like, again, the kids being so excited at anything that was different. We had been schooled in how to answer questions. If he asks you about the mothers being prostitutes, what do you say? Do you go to school? What do you say? Would you rather have a normal childhood? What do you say? Media training, essentially. And um, he sat me down for my interview unattended. And he said to me, didn't ask me any of the questions that they told me he might ask. He just said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And because, you know, the context of that, you know, that I wasn't raised thinking that I could grow up or that I would be an adult and no one had ever asked me that before. And this man just seemed like he um, like he wasn't lying. And I think kids are so good at spotting when someone's lying to them, aren't they? And I was just, I was like, maybe this is, maybe this is the truth. And it was a moment of epiphany. And again, I think it sounds ridiculous to say that about a child, but really it was probably one of the biggest moments of my life of feeling like there was a crack in the world that I had been experiencing and the things that I was being taught, perhaps I needed to start to unlearn and that really was the beginning of my trajectory out of there. That was the kind of moment where I started questioning much more and starting to start to think maybe I'm not mad because I had up until that point been thinking that I needed to potentially be broken by Jesus or broken by them or to, to experience this revelatory moment that my parents and everyone else had been speaking about. And then it was like, maybe, maybe he's right, maybe they're not. And that really was my kind of big, big change as a, as a child, to escape, essentially.
1: To hear the rest of Bexy's unbelievable story, you can listen back to the full episode of Changes with her, Bexy Cameron. And also Bexy's book, Cult Following, is out now. It came out on paperback a couple of weeks ago. So the whole back catalogue of Changes since we launched in 2020 is available wherever you get your podcasts. Do go back to those you missed. And while you're there, Give us a subscribe, rate the podcast, leave a review. It's always so lovely to hear from you and to hear how you're getting on with changes. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we are back with a brand new series of changes. Really exciting guests for you. New people, people you haven't heard from in a while and definitely want to and plenty of surprises. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. See you next time.